Welcome back to the Crone of Temple, Texas. As we're now fully in the holiday season, this episode will speak to something we're often faced with this time of year, tradition. Rather than holiday tradition, though, today Barbara is speaking to how our traditions within the church can actually become our idols. We miss God's new thing when we try to save all the old things forever, Barbara says. We can't afford to keep stifling the new life God has in store for us by trying to make it stay inside our traditional wrappings. This episode is probably one of the more raw episodes we've had. Raw because we get into very honest conversations about Barbara's belief in God and how for many people, even the thought that God may not be exactly as we perceive him to be is scary. Many people won't even wrestle with those thoughts because it might bring up deep pain and leave us feeling vulnerable. Barbara has written extensively, using gift wrappings as a metaphor for the church when the church becomes married to tradition. As we typically do, Barbara will read a portion of an article she wrote in Connections, and then we'll dive deeper into its meaning. Here's Barbara Winland. Wrapping gifts is one of my favorite parts of Christmas and family members' birthdays. I like to receive beautifully wrapped gifts, too. I almost hate for them to be opened because it messes up the wrappings I've enjoyed looking at. I often save gift wrappings. They're so pretty, and they represent so much love and work. In my attic, I have boxes and boxes of smushed bows, wrinkled gift wrap paper, and droopy artificial flowers and leaves. Whenever I start to wrap a gift, I dig through them, hoping to find something reusable. Sometimes I can reuse an especially gorgeous piece of wrapping paper for several years by cutting off its torn places and sticky spots. But after each trimming, I must use it for a smaller package, and hiding its tears and wrinkles keeps getting harder. I reuse package decorations, too. My mother and my daughter and I exchanged one pink foil angel every Christmas for years. I'd put it on one of my gifts to my mother one year, and she'd save it and use it on a gift for me or my daughter the next year. So the pink angel has always reminded me of my mother and of the fun she and my daughter and I have had wrapping gifts over the years. The pink angel seemed like an essential part of our family Christmas, but it is in pieces in an attic box now, too dilapidated to use. I wanted it to last forever, but it couldn't. We have a similar problem in the church, but it's harder to recognize there. The church wrappings include favorite hymns that we've sung for years. They include the words in which we've most often said prayers and creeds and heard favorite Bible verses. Our wrappings include methods of organizing the church and ideas about who should do which jobs. We love many of these features of the church. They evoke fond memories of important experiences and beloved people. Saving the beautiful packages in which our beliefs and memories have been wrapped helps us feel safe and comfortable. But change comes. New circumstances arise, which our old church wrappings won't cover. 
people get new insights from God and propose new wrappings to fit. New hymns appear and words are changed in old favorites. A new pastor comes and starts using a new method of taking communion or a new order of worship. Our personal lives change too. We enter new stages of life or disaster strike. Our old beliefs no longer cover what we're experiencing, but the thought of changing them is terrifying. We're afraid that if we replace our old wrappings, we won't like the new ones as well. Even looking into the old ones is scary because we feel that we might find them empty. So instead of looking for new wrappings that will fit the new situations and the new God-given insights, we cling fiercely to our old ones and try to keep them from being torn open. When we accept all the church's traditional beliefs and practices without ever reevaluating them, we're likely to think that anyone who advocates change is unchristian. And if the church changes, we may think it has become faithless or pointless. We may even decide that belief in God is pointless. When this happens, it means that we're worshiping mere wrappings and containers, not God. We're worshiping pictures of God instead of God. The Bible calls this idolatry. It's worshiping a human product that was meant to point us toward God instead of worshiping God. God is infinite, so God won't fit into any finite, humanly constructed package. Whenever we try to keep God in our packages, God will keep breaking out. We can't expect any religious custom, any pattern of church organization, or any description of God to last forever, no matter how beautiful it may be or how well it may serve us temporarily. Our traditions are merely packages in which God's presence is shown to us for a limited time. Like my pink foil angel and wrinkled paper, our church wrappings can't last forever. As always, Barbara, you not only make use of powerful imagery, you speak to something that directly plagues the church. If you were to sum up your gift wrapping metaphor, what is the truth you're trying to express? That we worship containers instead of their contents too often in the church. And the containers are the familiar ways in which we've expressed beliefs, the familiar ways in which we've seen scriptures translated and expressed, and all sorts of other uh, familiar ways that we're used to and comfortable with, but that no longer really serve our purposes like they need to. As we have said on this podcast more than once, the the church is married to tradition, not to the God they claim. The church is more attached to its traditions and the culture that it's presently a part of than it is to God and to what God may be calling the church to do in the present. Not that I doubt you in any way, Barbara, but is your attic really as full with gift wrappings as you say it is? If you were to go up into my attic, 
you would see boxes and boxes and boxes of used wrapping paper and ribbons and bows from past Christmas presents. And I never can bear to part with them. We, when we unwrap gifts at Christmas, we don't throw wrappings away unless they're just really beaten up and torn up or paper that's not very useful for using again. Anything that is reusable, we save in a box or a sack or something and take it to the attic. So it just keeps multiplying up there. <laughs> you have boxes and boxes of bows and gift wrapping paper from many previous years. Every year you take out the old stuff and reuse it, and from the sound of it, only if necessary do you add something new to your collection. That really is a great metaphor for the church, isn't it? The church holds on to previous generations' traditions rather than exploring or even making new ones. And as you say, hiding its tears and wrinkles keeps getting harder. I think probably the tears in the church wrappings would be ways in which we've used them that have finally gotten kind of beaten up and no longer attractive, no longer having the kind of meaning that they originally had for us. And and uh, when you use the paper too many times, then it some of it becomes wrinkled and it's it's not uh, not pretty anymore. And there's some things like that in the church too that that we thought maybe were really beautiful and maybe they were um, in their original form, like some of the King James version language. But then as it's used over and over, it gets kind of like the wrinkled paper. It's, we don't see it as that beautiful. We have different ways of expressing things now, different, more contemporary words. Has the church just failed itself because it refuses to acknowledge these tears and wrinkles? Do you think there's a need for the church to acknowledge these things and rebuild something new altogether? Yes, I think so. Um, I think that a lot of our our customs and such have um, have become just just really outdated. The church is is criticized greatly for you know its massive buildings, its oh, misuse yes. of funds, its right. celebrity pastor, you know, this yes. idea that, you know, we have to make this guy like a, a best-selling author. So right. there's a lot of what I would say tarnished, you know, skewed beliefs and views of the church. Yes, I think that's certainly true, is that um, the church buildings in the past were so much more elaborate in many cases, um, all the way back to giant cathedrals that we see in Europe, and they're beautiful to visit, 
but they're really hard to maintain and really expensive to maintain. And in the case of local church congregations, having a big, beautiful building not only has those problems of maintenance and such, but um, it doesn't fit the kind of activities that the members maybe do now, and or the membership has changed. Uh, in some cases, the membership has become smaller. That's certainly true in many cases. And uh, having a gigantic sanctuary um, is no longer useful. And it's even, uh, it's, it's sort of a negative feature to see a small group of people in a gigantic room. And it really emphasizes how the church has changed in that regard, which is discouraging. And and it it leads to wondering whether buildings that elaborate were really ever necessary uh, because they're they're very expensive and uh, they use up a lot of space and maybe they uh, maybe it requires spending money that could be put to better use for things that were more closely connected to what we now see as the church's real purpose, such as promoting justice and compassion in the world, um, caring for the poor or the needy or the mistreated, and I think maybe we've waked up to some extent to the fact that those things are really more important than having a gorgeous building. So you say we have a similar problem, obviously referring to the, you know, the, um, the wrappings being torn up and being reused, but you say it's harder to recognize within the church. What do you mean by that, that it's harder to recognize? Oh, I just mean that when you're talking about physical gift wrappings, it's easy to see that this one is so beautiful and somebody worked so hard to create it. And uh, it's gotten torn up some now after it's unwrapped and the paper's kind of ragged. But, um, and that's really obvious when it's paper and ribbons and things, but it's not at all obvious when it is traditions and customs in the church that um, we used to think were beautiful and wonderful and and we don't recognize now why they how they've deteriorated or stopped serving the purpose that they originally served yeah, there's there's all this like internal language that you really have to be what are the insiders? Cultured. Yeah, you have to be insider. You have to be cultured in the church in order to know what 
And that's really a problem if the church is trying to communicate to culture yes. or if they're trying to communicate to somebody who's never been in the church. Right. Yes. One of the examples you give is the church's use of language. Words that were written in Old English, for example, are still used today. Oh, dear. I'm trying to think of some of the songs that contemporary Christians have liked. Um, oh, one of the one of the really well-known ones was, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And, you know, that's King James English. We don't say thy and unto now. But that song was written by someone in, I don't know, certainly not later than the, I mean, not earlier than the 1950s or so. And yet it's it's using those words from the 1600s. And I think, why? What's the point to that? But the point seems to be that so many churchgoers think of those King James-style words as beautiful and as the form in which they usually, or they originally saw the Bible. And so that kind of language represents the Bible to them in a, in a way. I think there's also error that the church uses uh, language that only people who have been a part of the church understand. So oh, it's not absolutely. even so much that it's not an old word, but like I'm trying to think of the word fellowship, you know? Yes. Most people know what that word is, but they would never use it in a conversation. Right, and stewardship, and um, people associated those words so closely with the Bible that they think of them as religious words and as the kind of words that are necessary to communicate with God. Well, it gives this connotation that religion is is a relic. It is a historical something that took place, not a like anything um, that has of any value today. Right. And also that in order to participate in it, you have to learn that language and use it. It's sort of like saying you must learn French in order to go to this meeting, uh, even though it's happening in the U.S. today. You know, a lot of people would really be turned up Took completely turned off by that. They would think, gosh, I can't learn French in that length of time, and why should I? Do you have any thoughts on how we should, um, and I guess I'm maybe leading you a little bit with the question, but do you have any thoughts about how we should allow for freedom of interpretation, how verses, you know, were contextual or cultural uh, and how we must revisit, like, what's the essence of what was being said, but allow for, like, modern-day exploration and interpretation? Well, yes, I think we definitely should allow for um, new interpretation and understandings of uh, things like the contents, oh, sorry, of the contents of the Bible. Um 
and we should we can do that by paying attention to what scholars have learned in more recent years about what those words meant and what they evidently meant to the people at the time they were used. But it takes some doing to become aware of a lot of that. Another example you give is our methods of organizing the church, church leadership, who's capable of doing what jobs, you know, things like that. Do you believe that even the model of church leadership could be outdated? Oh, yes. Um, For example, in the Methodist church, they had in the in early America, the pastors were circuit riders who rode their their horses around a circuit of towns, uh, often small towns, and um, would be responsible for a group of little churches kind of widely scattered. And that, that doesn't fit our life today at all. And yet um, there's some aspects of the Methodist system that still kind of follow a very similar pattern. The pastors are said to be itinerant and um, yet the way today's life is set up, that isn't practical always for people. Uh, It has to do partly with the changes in women's life um, where uh, a pastor is a man and his wife has a job, a paying job outside the home, and therefore can't just pick up and move when that pastor is moved to a different church in a different town. So you say we love many features of the church. They evoke fond memories. Um, My question is, do you find fond memories are what people hold on to as opposed to the actual meaning? I think in a lot of cases, I think that is very true of hymns that people don't give a lot of thought to what they say near as much as they do to just the fact that I love this whole hymn and I remember my daddy singing it and so on. Um, And it's just it's that hymn itself that they feel so attached to, but, but not so much because of what it says as just to the fact that it's so familiar and they associate it with their childhood or a beloved family member or something. Nostalgia is a very big factor in with long-time church members. Now, that presumably doesn't have a particular effect on relative newcomers, but the people who have been active in the church for their whole life, I think nostalgia is a huge factor. Do you have any, I mean, you've been out of the church for now, you know, some years, but do you have any fond memories or nostalgic 
uh, elements of church that you still kind of hold on to as dear? Well, sort of. Um, especially some of the of the church music and participating in uh, in choirs. I was always in choirs and really have loved some of the the major choral works that we sang and um, I miss being a part of them anymore. So you say, you know, saving the beautiful packages in which our beliefs and memories have been wrapped helps us feel safe and comfortable. Talk about those words. What about what about this makes people feel safe and comfortable? Well, I think that uh, if it's the words in which their main beliefs have been expressed, for example, um, they hang on to those beliefs as an important part of being a Christian. And to even state those in slightly different words can be upsetting because it it gives the feeling um, maybe this the meaning of this belief has disappeared you know maybe we've given up we're giving up this belief if I don't hear it stated in those same familiar words and so uh if I turn loose of that, I may have nothing to hang on to. And that can be really scary. You know, that I relied on this belief as being true, like about when you, you'll go to heaven when you die and or whatever. And if I suddenly have to turn loose of that, even to the extent of using different words to describe it, um, then that can be really scary to think, what is gonna happen to me when I die? I don't know, maybe it's something terrible. Do you still have those questions? No, I don't believe so. So what do you think happens when we die? I don't know. But I don't think it's like going to a particular place. And I doubt seriously that, it, that it's different for uh, so-called bad people and good people. I think whatever it is happens to everybody. I don't know exactly what it is. I, I feel like it's okay, whatever it is, that I don't need to worry about what's going to happen to me when I die or be fearful of it. That's a, um, even for those, you know, people who might consider themselves a Christian, you know, I think that there's a lot of times I get the sense that they speak of something like, you know, heaven or, you know, the afterlife of being reunited with God. But you also get this sense of like, is that really true? So there's mm-hmm. always this like... Like they're trying to kind of reassure themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I... I it's, it's a genuine 
it's it's a rare thing when you find somebody who genuinely really believes what they say happens and most of the people that where I feel like they're genuinely you can believe that they believe what they're saying they're the ones that say we don't really know you know we we Mm -hmm. think that whatever it is is good we think that it's being reunited with the energy or with the source Mm -hmm. or whatever Mm -hmm. but this notion of like I get streets of gold and you get tormented in hell yes yes yeah, I don't find that credible at all. But and I don't know, like you say, some people that talk about it, maybe they don't really take it absolutely seriously. I don't know. I like your use of word here. You say that, um, but the thought of changing the term is terrifying. Talk about that a little bit. What's what's so scary about examining beliefs? Well, just that uh, you might not have anything else to depend on. You know, if you if you re- examine what you believe about God and you've always believed somehow that God is like a person, kind of Santa Claus in the sky-like person uh, that you can talk to, uh, and then what if what if you begin to think about that and decide, no, that can't really be true, well, where does that leave me? Do I not have anybody like that that I can communicate with or that will um, come to my rescue in any sense, will uh, help me if I get seriously ill or whatever? And that can be terrifying, I think, if you just felt that you were kind of tossed out there in the middle of nowhere with nothing to count on that you once thought you could count on. You bring up a a very good thought of, you know, something that I've heard over the years that essentially the, the Bible is a closed book, right? And so this notion of so-called progressive revelation Mm -hmm. is non-existent that you know god isn't continuing yes. to um to reveal himself which i think is absolutely an absurd thought but um you know maybe maybe share a little bit of your beliefs that you know it's not that we're saying throw the bible out and that it's you know to be discarded mm-hmm. but we have to embrace the fact that god is trying to communicate to people you know in every culture and every society right. and every time right it just it doesn't make any sense to me to think that God would have just delivered these pronouncements and pieces of information or whatever to a group of people many centuries ago and then just stopped, you know, and tuned out or that it would only be revealed to a certain group of people and not to ones that didn't happen to be born into that group, that culture, that location in the world or whatever. Anytime somebody does question tradition or theology or even authority, it's, it's more often than not met with resistance. It's met with Yes. You know, um, it's not even allowed in religious institutions to question things like virgin birth or... Right. Well, I think it 
that gets back partly to fear of if I've been able to hang on to this belief, then what am I going to do if I suddenly find that it's not true or that it even might not be true? But why do you think it's met with resistance even from the establishment? Well, because it threatens the belief of all those people in the establishment. It makes them have to think about their beliefs in a way. It's more comfortable not to have people out there poking at what you've have always counted on. It, it's to have somebody out there trying to poke holes in what you thought you were secure on is uncomfortable. But isn't that the essence of, uh, I mean, I guess the to use the church word or the, the church language of what a personal relationship is, like this personal exploration, like that seems to me the essence of what any faith should be is wrestling with and coming to grips with it as a reality yes. as opposed to just an accepted form that yes. somebody has told you. Well, I, I believe that's true, but I don't know. I think a lot of people have no confidence in their own ability to think about things and to come to different conclusions, possibly. They feel like if everybody has told them that certain things are true, that those everybody's must be more reliable than than just my personal feeble ability to to think about it. So you end this paragraph with, we may even decide that belief in God is pointless. Uh, I guess my question is, do you believe that belief in God is pointless? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't know exactly what it means. I, you know, I'm not sure what to believe about God, but I doubt if it's pointless. It might be, but I think probably I've been uh, brainwashed by the church for too long to just say I'm willing to give it all up and say, no, it doesn't, it's not of any value. Well, I think the heart of the question is the value of it is what the person gets out of it. And so if they find yeah. that there's value in it, then that is the value. Well, that may be true that that it has a it serves a purpose for them. I I don't know whether that's a valid purpose or not, you know, for anybody to to believe in something that something that's not really true. If you just believe in that, it might serve a good purpose for you in a way in that it gave you reassurance, you know, that things were going to be okay when you die or something. But um, You said whenever we try to keep God in our packages, God will keep breaking out. I take that to mean that um, new things will become apparent to us. You know, that if we think we have God all figured out and contained in this package, this container of some kind, 
that if we're alive and alert at all, uh, we're liable to come across some information or suspicion that um, contradicts that. I want to end on this topic, Barbara. Would you read the last section of your article? When you think about it, today's traditions were a previous generation's trendsetters, right? Ironically, many of our present church traditions were begun by Christians who dared to discard old traditions that no longer express God's will for the church. But we're rarely willing to do that now. The United Methodist Church came into existence because John Wesley, a clergyman in 18th century England, made drastic changes from the religious practices that were customary in the Church of England that he was part of. He discarded old wrappings and developed new ones. In order to revitalize worship and reach contemporary people, Wesley preached in factories and in town squares instead of in church buildings. He and his brother wrote new hymns, often using the tunes of popular songs, including some pub songs. But we Methodists now consider Wesley's hymns and methods sacred. We're not willing to change any of them, even if they're no longer effective. We try to preserve Wesley's creations instead of looking for equally creative answers to today's needs. The King James Version of the Bible also came into existence because innovative, God-inspired people saw a need and dared to make changes in order to meet it. King James I of England saw that people needed a translation of the Bible that they could read for themselves. He assembled a group of scholars who translated the Bible into the contemporary English of their time. The words that were everyday language in 1611 are almost like a foreign language to Americans who aren't regular churchgoers, and these are the people we need to reach with the gospel. Yet many Christians still use those outdated words, not only for Bible reading, but also for public prayer and for talking about their beliefs. These Christians refused to take the kind of bold step that King James did. They worshiped King James's wrappings instead. When needed change finally takes place and we get used to the new way, we usually wonder why anyone ever opposed it. We feel this way now about banning slavery and racial segregation, for example, and letting women vote. Can't we learn from experience and make the changes that God, through prophetic voices, asks us to make? God often has to wrench us loose from strongly held beliefs and cherished traditions in order to show us more of God. Because God is infinite, we can never fully see or describe God. So the need to learn more about God, describe God in new ways, and express our faith in new ways never ends. We miss God's new thing when we try to save all the old things forever. We're busy saving cocoons when God has butterflies ready to emerge. 
We're saving seeds instead of burying them so they can become flowers. We can't afford to keep stifling the new life God has in store for us by trying to make it stay inside our traditional wrappings. I don't want to put words into your mouth, so I'll pose it as a question instead. Earlier, you had said our traditions are merely packages in which God's presence is shown to us for a limited time. You use John Wesley as an example. So do do you feel like the church just simply has failed to evolve? Well, yes, because there it gets back to that that whole thing of nostalgia and comfort that change is uncomfortable in a sense even if it's really if it's change that turns out to be beneficial it's just it's hard to stop doing what you've always done and thinking what you've always thought i mean to stop thinking what you've always thought is uncomfortable that to me is the essence of you know if if i were to have an interpretation of what it means to be born again it's this notion that old beliefs die off and new beliefs are Uh formed old ways of doing things are you know crucified so to speak and new life is resurrected and certainly i think change is more uncomfortable for some people than for others And that's just a result of, I don't know, personality, experience, who knows what. But some people um, like to change in a way that others don't. I wonder if that's what, you know, the narrative of Jesus being so combative with the religious institution was about, was that they were married to the tradition and not to you know, pursuit. Yes, I think probably so. Jesus was, you know, definitely portrayed as a reformer. Right. And that the religious people of the day were the people he criticized the most. So I want to end on this point here. Um, You have a statement where you say, we try to preserve Wesley's creations instead of looking for equally creative answers to today's needs. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Oh, I think, I mean partly by, we try to preserve the the church practices that he started, like the hymns, you know, he and his brother, his brother especially composed all these hymns and they were new to people at the time, but now um, they're the old familiar things that people feel nostalgic for and want to hang on to. And that is the essence of Barbara's life work, to ask the church, to ask people to examine its beliefs. Get comfortable with asking yourself difficult questions that seem daunting but knowing that there is tremendous strength, power, and insight that can be found when we're willing to challenge our deepest convictions. Thank you for joining us on the Crone of Temple, Texas. If you found this episode worthwhile, please share it with a friend, like our social media pages, and if you haven't already, 
go to connectionsonline.org to subscribe to Barbara's weekly articles.